Good evening and welcome candidates and those present in the audience, whether in person or online. As courtesy to all those present, please silence your cell phones. This is the Iowa City City Council Candidate Forum. All candidates in, contest in contested elections have been invited to participate in this forum. I am Shannon Patrick, a member of the League of Women Voters of Johnson County, and I will be your moderator for this evening's forum. The League of Women Voters is a volunteer, nonpartisan organization that neither supports nor opposes any party or candidate, which is why we have the policy that campaign literature is welcome outside of this room following the forum, and buttons, signs, or literature can be worn or, uh, excuse me, and no buttons, signs, or campaign literature may be distributed in this room. We ask that no questions or outbursts come directly from the audience. The League supports the free and open exchange of ideas through civil discourse. Please hold any applause until the end of the forum. The League does take positions after considerable study of issues and acts to influence decision makers on those issues. We work not only to register voters, but also to provide them with information on issues to assist their participation in government. Membership is open to anyone of age 16 years or older. Join us. We could use your time, your talent, and your financial resources. League members advocate and inform voters. Democracy works best when more people are involved. Membership forms are available at our welcome table near the entrance or find us at www.lwvjc.org. The views expressed in this forum are those of the candidates. All viable candidates have been invited to participate. After candidates have been introduced, they will each have two minutes for opening remarks. We will then present questions to them, starting with one from the League, followed by one submitted by the audience. League members are distributing cards, and I see a number of you have already taken advantage of that, um, for you to write questions on. You may submit as many questions as you would like, uh, hold up the cards, and a League member will collect them throughout the for forum and bring them to me to read. Questions that fall into the same general category may be consolidated. If time does not allow for all questions to be addressed, you may contact the candidates directly after the forum or at another time. Each question will be asked of all candidates. Each candidate will have one minute to respond to each question. Due to the time frame, there will not be time for rebuttals. Near the end of the scheduled time for this event, each candidate will have two minutes for closing remarks speaking order will be rotated throughout the forum. League men member Patty McCarthy will serve as our timekeeper today and use cards to alert candidates when your time is about to be up and when your time is up. Before introducing the candidates participating in tonight's forum, I would like to recognize Andrew Dunn, who is the district for, for uh, excuse me, the candidate for District C. Mr. Dunn is running unopposed for the District C seat, so he will not be receiving questions this night. However, we are happy to have him join us and will be available after the forum if you have questions for him. As a reminder, November 7 is election day. All voters in the city may vote for the two at-large seats and for both of the district seats. Oh, <laughs> where would you like to do that? Well, 
Mr. Dunn, would you like to have a couple of minutes? Sure, sure, absolutely. I, I want to thank the League of Women Voters of Johnson County for putting on this forum today. Uh, we always want to make sure that our voters are uh, as informed as possible about the candidates before them, and this is a critical component of that process. Um, I think a little bit of uh, information about myself is, is necessary, so um, I'll just take it away. Um, I'm a community organizer and activist. I currently am uh, an, an international field organizer for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, otherwise known as the Teamsters Union, uh, where I organize labor unions across the state of Iowa as well as across the United States. Um, I was appointed to the at-large position that I currently hold, not the District C seat that I'm currently running for uh, after uh, now Councillor John Thomas retires, uh, after the, uh, I guess, ascendance of now Senator Janice Weiner uh, to her seat in the, in the State Senate. Um, in the past, I've been uh, very active with political advocacy both in our community and across the state. Uh, I previously ran for state house against uh, Representative Adam Zadner, who just entered the room. Uh, and uh, I have also been the uh, executive director of the gun violence prevention nonprofit March for Our Lives Iowa, which is still kicking today. Um, I am 25 years old. I am the youngest city councilor that our community has had on record since record began, uh, I, I guess. I uh, can't say ever, we don't know. <laughs> uh, but I'm very proud of, of that, uh, that fact, uh, as well as the fact that I am uh, currently the only renter on the city council, the first renter on council uh, since Karen Cubby within the last 30 years. Uh, I think that that perspective of, of being uh, someone from a working family, of being a renter in the community, and also being a young person uh, is an incredibly important aspect uh, in missing voice in, in many uh, local government discussions, and it's one that I uh, am really proud to, to represent. That being said, I, I don't represent just youth issues or you know, just labor issues or just working family issues. Uh, I'm here to represent the entire city of Iowa City. Um, so a little bit about my uh, broader priorities as a counselor. Um, you know, working family issues are huge. Affordability is huge. Uh, affordable housing, uh, whether that's related to the cost of, of rent or the cost of uh, you know, a, a mortgage or you know, general cost of living in this community, uh, is is a huge priority along with a lot of other things, but I'm going to be uh, answering questions at the end So if you guys have any questions about my other priorities feel free to ask. Thank you Thank you very much All right now take two on to the election <laughs> <laughs> So November 7th is the election day uh, and uh, City Council is broken up into two sets as it were uh, there are two at-large seats uh, there are three candidates for these at-large seats, so two of these three will move on. Uh, the three candidates for these at-large seats are Josh Moe, Mandy Remington, and Mazahir Salih. The other part of the election is the District A. There are two candidates for District A. One will be elected on November 7th. The two candidates for District A are Laura Burgess and Pauline Taylor. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. And again, to audience, please write any questions you have on cards provided and pass them to a league member who will send them up to me. Let's get started with opening statements. Please speak loudly and in, or into your mic so that audience members and those online can hear you. Uh, candidates, uh, let's start with uh, Mr. Mo. your opening statement. All right. Good evening, and thank you uh, all for being here, and thanks to the league for organizing this important event. My name is Josh Moe, and I am running to represent the city at large for the Iowa City City Council. I'm a farm kid from north central Iowa who found my way to Luther College. 
By the time I graduated, I was out of the closet. Like many Iowans then and today, Iowa didn't feel safe or inclusive, so I left. I moved east. But then in 2011, I returned to Iowa, but this time to Iowa City to be with my husband. That move was the best thing that ever happened to me. I fell in love with this city. I fell in love with Iowa City. I'm proud of our city, and I think that uh, we live in the best place in Iowa. Our community is inclusive, environmentally conscientious, and fiscally sound. Unfortunately, we have a state government that's making it very difficult to plan ahead and follow through on our initiatives, but I am up for the challenge. I'm an architect, and as an architect, building consensus, thinking creatively, and developing a long-term vision is the core of my work. We need that here on Iowa City's Council. My experience with construction and infrastructure planning, my knowledge of our nonprofits, um, that's needed on our local government. So I'm also a, a volunteer and an advocate in our community. I served the United Way Community Impact Council, which gave me unique insights into 30 local nonprofits. Those agencies also receive city funding and provide provide important public safety functions. I was a three-term chair of the Community Leadership Program, worked with Habitat for Humanity, and also served on the board of directors for Old Brick, Friends of Historic Preservation, and Preservation Iowa. Now, I've always been interested in public service, but I feel like now, at 41 years old, I have the skills, life experience, and commitment to be an effective city council member. By the end of the evening, I hope you'll know me better. I hope you'll see how much I love Iowa City, and you'll see that I have the skills life experience and commitment to be an effective city council member and make our city council stronger. Please vote for me on November 7th. Thank you. Ms. Remington, your opening statement. Hi everyone. I want to thank the League and the Senior Center for hosting us and for everyone that's here. My name is Mandy Remington and I'm running for Iowa City Council at large. I was born in Southern California and spent my first 14 years between there mainland Japan and Okinawa. These formative experiences gave me a global perspective and a cultural competence that I still bring to my work today. My family moved back to Iowa when I was in, sorry, the summer before I started ninth grade at West High. And at 17, I found myself here in Iowa City where I have since rented, worked, raised my children, lived through and escaped domestic violence and found true community. During these 23 years, I've gained a profound understanding of our dynamics, needs, and potential. My firsthand experiences as a low-income single parent bring a much-needed voice to the council, as it's crucial to have representatives who understand what it means to struggle. I genuinely grasp the importance of things like accessible, affordable housing, food, and childcare, because I know what it means to need them. As the founder and director of Corridor Community Action Network, I've spent years building alliances throughout the state while addressing our most pressing issues. Additionally, my 17 years of employment by the University of Iowa have given me valuable insights into our city's largest institution and its relationship to our community. These experiences, combined with serving in leadership positions as a City of Iowa City Climate Ambassador, the Vice Chair of the Council on the Status of Women for the University of Iowa, former Chair of the UI Safety and Security Committee and the Iowa City Community Police Review Board, have provided me with an in-depth understanding of local governance and collaborative policy development. My lived experience and deep roots in this community have shaped my commitment to being a city councilor who listens to, understands your needs, and bases policy on them. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Lee, your Thank opening you. statement, please. 
My name is Mazahir Saleh. Some of you may recall my previous term in Iowa City Council during 20, 20, from 2018 to 2021. I was the first and only black woman elected to Iowa City City Council in 179 years. Moreover, I was the first Sudanese American ever to be elected to the whole country. I had the honor to serve as Mayor Brutam in 2020 and 2021 under the leadership of Mayor Teague. It was a period marked by significant challenges, including COVID-19 pandemic, the radio, and Black Lives Matter movement. As Iowa City's first black mayor and mayor Brutem team, we give voices to the citizens who have been historically underrepresented, and we navigated these challenges with skill and care. I am proud of the substantial growth Iowa City experienced during my term and many meaningful accomplishments we have achieved in our, uh, our community, for our community. After my term, I made a difficult decision not to seek re-election. My children were in the middle school. They needed my full attention during the critical years of development. I also took the role of executive director of the Center for Worker Justice, where I advocate for the right and well-being of low-wage workers and immigrant residents. IOCT deserve diverse leaders with advocacy and leadership experience, vision, and steadfast dedication to the well-being of our community. I am committed to listening to your concern, advocate for your interest, and working without stopping to make Iowa City an even better place for, uh, for all of us to live, work, and thrive. My top priority are affordable housing, economic development for all, and transportation. In closing, I ask you for your trust, partnership, and vote in our shared mission to make Iowa City a brighter and more inclusive place. Please remember to make it Mazahir on uh, November 7. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Burgess, your opening statement. Good evening. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to the League and the Senior Center for hosting us tonight. My name is Laura Burgess, and I'm running for re-election to the Iowa City City Council. Uh, my background is as a lifelong Iowa City resident, so I have seen our community as a child who went to Grantwood Elementary School, I uh, went to Southeast Junior High, I went to City High and the University of Iowa for undergrad. And during that time, starting when I was in high school, I also worked for the city of Iowa City. I, my job at that time was recording the city council meetings. And so I watched hundreds of hours of Iowa City city council meetings for a number of years. I continued my service in uh, local government by working for the city of North Liberty, uh, where I was also a department head. So I got to learn about the city budget and zoning and municipal functions of all kinds. So I bring that deep substantive understanding to the work on the city council. I then decided to switch careers and headed to law school. I've been an attorney in private practice with the Hayek Law Firm here in Iowa City since 2011, and I'm also a professional mediator. I wear my mediation hat the most when I'm working on city council because I know that we need to be able to collaborate and to find common ground and to work together for all those values that we share. I'm really proud of my first term on Iowa City City Council. Uh, as 
Mazahir Sali mentioned, it was a very difficult time. I started in 2020. Within six months of my election, uh, I authored the 16-point resolution in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm very proud of the strategic plan that the City Council has recently adopted just at the end of last year. I'm excited to continue my service with the focus on climate action, social justice and racial equity, and partnerships and collaboration. I'm grateful for your support and hope that I will have your vote on November 7th. Thank you. Ms. Taylor. Thank you, and thank you to the League uh, for holding this forum and for the audience and for your interest in the City Council election. Hopefully we'll do better than the 6.38% turnout from the primary. Uh, my name is Pauline Taylor. I am the incumbent in the District A seat on the Iowa City City Council, and I'm running for re-election to that seat. I'd like to make it clear, uh, as he'd mentioned, that in this upcoming City Council election, every registered voter in the City of Iowa City can vote for all of the seats. That's been a little unclear to people. I grew up in Des Moines. After graduating from high school, I came to Iowa City to attend the University of Iowa College of Nursing, and that was over 49 years ago now. I come from a family of three generations of nurses, so it was always my dream to be a nurse. The College of Nursing recently received one of the highest ratings in the country for being a high-quality College of Nursing. I'm very proud of my alma mater and continue to use the skills that I learned while there. That education not only helped me to build on my values and morals, but I also learned the importance of listening to people, what a person has to say, which is carried over into my work on the council. Shortly after graduating with a BSN from the College of Nursing, I began employment at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, where I worked as a staff nurse for 38 years before retiring in 2012. A few years after retiring from the hospital, I decided to run for the Iowa City City Council. I was first elected to the District A seat in 2016, won re-election in 2020, and served as Mayor Pro Tem from 2018 to 2020 under former Mayor Jim Throgmorton. I'm now in my second term as the incumbent in District A, and I'm running for re-election to that seat. As a nurse, I'm concerned about the health, safety, and well-being of all members of the community. I see the community as a living, breathing body, and as a nurse, I can relate to taking care of the whole body. Over the past few years, the Council has made significant strides in a number of areas to help assure that care, but there's still a lot of work to be done, and I would love to be able to continue to be a part of that work. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Our first question is from the League of Women Voters. What do you think is the biggest need in Iowa City currently, and how would you address that need? Uh, start uh, First goes to you, Ms. Remington. I would say that the biggest need in our community is just security. Um, and that comes from having basic needs met. It's kind of hard to say whether food security or affordable housing is a bigger issue. Um, but I do fall in line a lot with housing first. Um, ultimately, folks need to have somewhere to sleep, to shower. They need to have food to eat. And we have a lot of folks in our community that don't have either of those things, which is why my top priority on city council is improving access to basic needs. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Lee. Yeah. For me, I really think it is affordable housing, food security, and you know, like if you don't have food in the tables, and if you don't have a roof on the top, uh, what else, you know, you can have? So to, for the person to live 
and thrive in this community, that's the basic need. We need everyone in this city to have a roof at the, like a roof in their top and also food at the table. If we can secure this, we can go to the next step. There is many things could be after that transportation, economic development for all. We need jobs that pay livable wage, those three things. But I really think we should focus on affordable housing for the people so we don't have people homeless like what we see right now. Ms. Burgess. I think the biggest issue is safety. And safety means a lot of different things. It means safety in your person, in your bodily autonomy. It means safety in knowing that you can go to school and be welcomed. It means safety going to your place of worship and uh, public spaces. It means safety in your neighborhood, knowing your neighbors and feeling secure and having housing that is safe and affordable. It means safety when you're moving from one part of the community to the next, whether you're on a bicycle or on foot or riding on our free buses. So I hope that we take a very expansive, inclusive um, view of safety, and I think we can address that um, in these coming four years. Ms. Taylor. I would definitely have to echo that affordable housing is one of the uh, key important things uh, that are that's needed in this community. And unfortunately, we've been talking about it for many, many years. We have been taking many steps uh, towards that. Uh, but affordable housing is indeed, it, it's a right. It's given right. Uh, everybody deserves to have safe, healthy uh, housing. And in the long run, it's, kind of, it's a domino effect because it affects our workforce. If someone doesn't have a safe, healthy place to live, it's difficult for them to, to go to work. Uh, so it affects that, which also then affects our economic stability. So it all kinds of affects everything. I, I believe the city has taken some major steps recently towards that. I was uh, had the uh, fortune to take the bus tour, affordable housing bus tour. I don't know if any of you went on that. It was amazing. Uh, it, and if you don't think we've done things for affordable housing, you need to do that tour sometime because there, there are many, many affordable units uh, here in Coralville and North Liberty uh, that provides uh, rental and, and uh, home ownership. So uh, those, those, that's important, I think, truly important. Thank you. Mr. Mo. This is not going to be exciting because I think that my colleagues are right. Housing is the biggest issue in Iowa City right now. We have, an, we have a housing shortage and that's causing incredibly high housing costs. The year 2022 had the lowest level of residential lot creation in 30 years, which means the problem is getting worse, even though we're spending a lot of money for affordable housing. We have to prioritize this, but we also need to think, start to do things differently. And I think what we need to do is to think about housing as a four-legged stool, and we need to be coordinating community groups, private not-profits, government supports, which you're doing, and also community-minded developers. Um, I know that for some of you worried about growth, um, you might be a little worried. I understand I'm a preservationist who loves our small town feeling and historic neighborhoods, but we can't deny housing to people who contribute to our community. I think balancing this need to, to develop housing um, with preserving our authentic, vibrant neighborhoods is uh, requires a high-level collaboration and someone with uh, my skill set. Thank you. Our next one is popular, and I'm going to try and combine a few different versions of this question. Uh, please describe your position regarding the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What progress you view that they have made, if you believe they've made progress, and what the next steps should be? Um, Ms. Salee, starting with you. Yeah. You know, I, I think 
having just a truth and reconciliation commission in our community, that's a unique one that we have. I think we should be proud just to have that because many, many as a state or cities, they don't have that. This is a like, unique uh, commission that we have. I think right now they already have their uh, consultant and they have what they need uh, from budget and everything. I think they need now to just start working with everyone. So because, you know, like they have to start working with, to, to, to address a racial issue in this community, that's huge. I don't know how they're gonna do it, but this is not as an easy tax. This is really difficult tax. And I hope they can like do something about it. And this is not gonna something that's gonna be solved overnight. This is going to take from us work and cooperation of all the stockholders and the people who are affected by this issue. I really just wish them the best of luck uh, to do that. I just believe this is a good commission that we have. Thank you. Ms. Burgess. Um, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has certainly been a lightning rod for this community and had a lot of um, controversy surrounding it. I hope those who are interested in the commission or the commission's history are paying attention now because what the commission is doing now is absolutely phenomenal. Now that they finally have the resources from the city council to have international experts assisting them with their work, they are off and running. I have had the pleasure of um, participating in a Pathfinder project through a strategic doing session uh, with the Truth and Reconciliation process that was opened up to the public. And it is just, it is so inspiring and phenomenal, um, the energy and excitement that is happening around that. So it is tremendously difficult work, and I think we need to continue to support the commission and be willing to look uh, longer term. But I am very, very hopeful for its future. Ms. Taylor. As has been mentioned, that um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, occurred had many obstacles in in the very beginning, uh, but since that time, they are changed some membership on their commission. Uh, they've just recently submitted their bylaws, finally got that in, in place in stone, uh, which is helpful. And as Ms. Burgess uh, mentioned, we did the city hired a consultant to help them uh, to get through and, and figure out where what they needed to do, what. Um, and those consultants have been very helpful. I've seen progress in the last uh, month or two, and I, I do have um, great hope for, for them and their success. Mr. Mo. Sure. I want to start by acknowledging that the TRC was developed in an unprecedented time. Um, people were locked up in their homes due to COVID, and then people watched George Floyd get murdered, which sparked months of sustained protest. Um, and our city government had to do something, um, and they did that. They did something. They created the TRC. I also want to um, give respect to the community leaders who gave up their time to be part of the TRC and gave up their privacy and, and also uh, made themselves vulnerable for the sake of building a better community. And I respect and appreciate the people who have done that. Unfortunately, I don't think the TRC is, is working. A, a very small group of people know a lot about it, but I don't think the broader community knows more than the headlines. And those headlines aren't good. They know that it's expensive. They know that there have been um, terrible racial slurs that came out of it, and they know that um, a guy just cut his ankle bracelet off to is, try to escape to Chicago. Now, it is important that our city works really, really hard to, to dismantle systemic racism. I just don't know that the TRC is the right vehicle to do that because we just don't have broad community buy-in for it. And uh, with its history and with its framework, I, I just think we need to rethink how we 
take on this very important task. Ms. Remington. I think that the TRC's existence is absolutely critical to our community because not just our country and not just our state, but our city have well-documented, long-standing racial disparities in school discipline, in arrests, in use of force, in incarceration, in home ownership, employment, and income. And systemic work is messy, systemic work is hard, but systemic problems require that. And the, as Laura said, um, they finally have gotten the support that they needed, they have gotten the resources they needed, they have hired their experts, they're doing the work. And if you wanna know more about that work, their meetings are available on Zoom and in person. And they're, it's, it's really great work and I'm really excited to see what happens moving forward. All right, our next question is a little shift of tone. How do you balance the interests of developers in development and the wants and needs of the community? Uh, starting with you, Ms. Ber uh, Ms. Burgess. Hmm. Well, I think we need to try and help them align, right? So finding common ground is critically important in all of the policy decisions that we make. But um, I think as others have mentioned already this evening, the community is growing and people want to live here people are moving here and so we need places for people to live um, and that occurs primarily through private development and so um, i think the city has struck a pretty good balance in the um, the regulations that we have in place to ensure the highest quality of development and to protect the environment during development and to ensure uh, affordable housing when and where and how we can within the law. Um, I think that, you know, I hope to work more collaboratively with our neighboring communities because we do see a lot of development happening in ways that um, we maybe wouldn't appreciate or allow in Iowa City in, uh, that is happening in our neighboring communities, and I think we can really work together on that. Thank you. Ms. Taylor. It is it's, it's important to balance the needs of the developers, obviously, uh, and, and the city. I would encourage and always encourage developers to uh, follow the guidelines that are in place, the zoning codes and the comprehensive plans. I also encourage them always to uh, be mindful of the sensitive areas around where they are planning to develop. I think that's vitally important, especially in our historic neighborhoods. That's also very important to keep that in mind and to balance that. Um, uh, I've heard from a number of uh, folks in neighborhoods that were concerned about uh, the developments that were coming in and it would, it would disturb the surrounding areas, the nature and the, those kinds of things. So that's what they need to be mindful of and balance that. If you look around Iowa City, you'll notice that development is happening. It's happening in Coralville, it's happening in North Liberty, it's happening in Tiffin, but most of our development here is student-dominated tall buildings. We aren't seeing single-family um, investment, and we need that here. Now, the developers, particularly those willing to build those developers, have chosen to not build here because we have a lack of predictability and because we aren't... Um, the city council needs, has a responsibility to influence design through its policies at the very beginning, not at the very end of the process. I think that once we find community-minded developers who are willing to build here and follow our, our strict rules and, and, and be careful about sensitive areas and specifically historic neighborhoods, um, I think we can start building again. Ms. Remington. 
I also think that there's a lot of balance that needs to happen there. Um, I do not have major issues with density in housing when we're facing the housing crisis that we are. I do think that we do need to look at some more density, um, but I do have issues with, yes, the student-focused, high-cost housing that we're seeing. Um, so while I'm not necessarily going to say I think we need to focus on single-family housing, I do think that we need to focus on mixed use. We need to encourage property developers to develop sustainably, to develop in ways that fit in with our community, and we can look at providing various types of incentivization to help make sure that that happens. I think I agree with, like many uh, things said here, but uh, we have to ask ourselves questions. You know, when I was in the city council, the developer, if the developer like check money boxes, that's it. You know, I understand we have policy in place that will let the developer build with, you know, if they check the box that they have to do it. But you know, we have to look at the value of the, of the community. What we need from them. I'm not against density, as others said, but we, we cannot build a tall building in the middle of, like, we have this just to find the right place for that tall building to happen. And also, we need to have, uh, to put our value on it. Do we want affordable housing? We have to ask the developer to do affordable housing, but we cannot just say to the developer also, you build affordable housing, period. We have to have incentivized for them. We have to give them something in return so we can encourage them. I think when it comes to affordable housing, we need to bring a lot of stockholders together so we can find out the solution. This is not an easy thing to do. Thank you. Our next question, beginning with Ms. Taylor. Uh, how, how will you support gun violence efforts, uh, gun violence prevention efforts in our community? Um, and to combine a couple of does the city have any options in there for red flag laws? Thank you for that question. I've been looking at this young lady sweatshirt, the Moms Demand Action, and I, I commend them for everything that they've done over the past uh, years or so uh, to promote that. And for Gun Sense in America is, is what her sweatshirt says. They don't want to take your guns away. Uh, they are just out there to promote gun safety. There are many things that can do that, the uh, securing guns in uh, locked cabinets or uh, locks on the guns themselves, keeping the ammunition separate from that, and they're out there promoting those kinds of actions for people. Um, red flag laws, I'm not sure what you meant by that or what they meant by that as far as um, persons perhaps with mental health disorders that uh, that are applying for, for gun safety. And I, I think we need, an, as a city, to encourage more funding for mental health providers. There just are not enough out there in the community uh, because some of these, these persons uh, are feeling stressed and angry, and they go with guns. So I think that's a very important aspect of it, too, to provide funding for that. So we live in a state with a lot of guns and a state legislature that has made it very difficult to create regulations at the local level. And um, while I would like to see a red flag law, which would be a law that would allow someone to, to, to reach out if a loved one was in crisis and, and perhaps take the gun away temporarily, that's unlikely in Iowa right now. So what I think we should focus on is, is gun safety and encourage everyone who has a gun to make sure that it's always locked. If it's in your home, it's, it's secured. If it's in your car, it's secured. If you're gonna send your kids to a friend's house, ask if you have a gun in the home. Are you going to uh, make sure that it's secured? 
Um, we know that gun violence does happen when you know a, a bad guy uses one, but it also happens because sometimes people use guns accidentally or to harm themselves, and we need to be very mindful of that and talk about that. Ms. Remington. Yes, um, I have lost someone to suicide by gun and as a domestic violence survivor have also lived in fear of gun violence. So I'm well aware of how complex the issue is and because of that complexity, it's something that takes a multifaceted approach. Gun violence involves suicide by gun, it involves homicide and it involves accidents. And so we need to make sure that we address all of those areas with suicide prevention programs, with mental health supports, with violence prevention programs, community mediation programs, and with programs that supply safe storage accessories. You know, when it comes to gun, interestingly, like somebody like coming from me coming from Sudan, I never saw a gun before I come to this country. Like in Sudan, we really was living in peaceful widow. I don't know what the type of guns. If you ask me right now what is and the names and everything, I don't know nothing about them. We never have one, and we thought we don't need one. Since I came here, I started learning about all these guns and everything. But you know, as a city, if we cannot like control what happened at the federal level or what happened at the state level, I think, as we said, we need to encourage, as others said, we need to encourage more programs for mental health. And we need also to, to make sure everybody keep, if they have that, to keep it safe in their place. And we, we are here really in peaceful uh, community. Uh, comparing to any, any other community. We don't know, we don't want those people to carry those to come. And also city facilities have to be that nobody should bring something like this in there. If we have the power to, to just like eliminate it from the city buildings, that would be good. So we can use any tools in our tools box just to stop that if we can. I agree with everything um, that's, uh, Mandy Remington said in particular that this really takes a multi multifaceted approach of collaborations among many different uh, entities and organizations. I think the government obviously has a, a role in this, but we probably do have to work within the laws that we have. And so within that, um, for example, within the last few years, there has been an expansion of the opportunity for people to seek protective orders based on different kinds of violence and um, working with our local sheriff's department to ensure that when that occurs that guns are removed and that that process is followed. Um, obviously, working with the school district on um, educating kids, normalizing, not having, uh, talking about whether there's guns in the home, whether guns are stored safely, and ensuring that, uh, sorry, Patty, were you holding that up? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apologies. Um, just ensuring that uh, people have the opportunity to have the safety and care that they need on the front end so that they're less likely to resort to use of a gun. All right. Our next question, beginning with Mr. Moe, uh, how do you prioritize addressing climate change issues at the city level, and do you believe that the city's climate action plan is adequate to that? So I'm really proud to live in a city that has a climate action plan and I'm proud of the progress that this city council has made on transportation. I'm an architect, which means I'm a buildings and infrastructure guy and that's what I would bring to city council is a real intense focus on what we can do specifically with our city buildings 
to address climate action. Um, I've had the opportunity to study multiple buildings that the city owns and operates and proposed projects for them. And I've learned that we do not have policy in place that makes us electrify our buildings, that decarbonizes our buildings, or that does a complete analysis of what it means to either rebuild or improve our existing building stock. Um, so climate action for me also includes thinking about resilience and about how our public spaces might need to be a space of refuge for people if we have uh, a flood, which is hard to imagine, um, or a fire or some sort of terrible weather disaster. I am intimately familiar with the city's climate action and adaptation plan as I was part of the first cohort of Iowa City Climate Ambassadors. And it is a great and robust plan that I, I am very proud also that we have. Um, but it is not enough for our current climate crisis, as bad as it is. Um, I do believe that we need to commit to 100% 24-hour a day, seven days a week carbon-free energy produ uh, production. Um, that is not something that we have yet done. I would like to see us get involved in encouraging MidAmerica to close their remaining coal plants. Um, they have not agreed to do that. and. Um, I believe that municipalities have a place in creating some pressure there. Um, I also believe that we have a lot of amazing organizations in our area that we need to bring to the table when we work on our climate action plan. Um, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, the Iowa Sierra Club, um, the Great Plains Action Society, just to name a few. I was in the city council when we approved this uh, you know, climate action plan. So I'm proud of the step that the city have taken. I think the city is in the right track of this, but that's not enough as Mandy said. You know, also for me, I'm gonna look at it in different like angles because we have to educate the people even about the climate actions. The people even, you know, like immigrants, people on low wage workers, they don't know anything about that and they don't even believe on it. So just now, instead of like jumping and doing this, you have to start educating the people. And also there is many, many people, they don't have uh, you know, the, the money necessary or the tools so they can be involved in that. Low-income people, they live in really bad houses that is not uh, like uh, encouraging the climbing, uh, climate action. So I think we need to have education to our the people who live in this community about climate action so we can have the big, like the, the big shares uh, like for everything together. So I think it have to have an education for the community about that. I think the key is empowering every person to understand that they have a role to play in um, our climate action plan and that we take our accelerated plan and keep accelerating it. So I appreciate many of the comments that have been made up here tonight and I think that um, it, the city of Iowa City has done a good job in beginning those real mobilization efforts of letting people understand what their individual roles can be, whether that is, um, you know, making sure that their home is the most energy efficient that it can be, um, or, you know, changing up modes of transportation, um, finding ways to, you know, limit the number of trips that you're taking. I think we're making good strides in educational efforts, and uh, I think the Climate Ambassador Program is also a great example of that. So I'm just excited that we're going to continue ramping that up as we must because the climate crisis is accelerating too. Well, I'll be honest, at, at first thought when, uh, as Maz mentioned, we were setting these goals, I thought it was a very lofty goal uh, to achieve 
uh, reduced emissions by 2030, like 50%. Uh, but I understand we've already reached that goal and are on our way to the 2050 goal. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. I think the city has done a lot, uh, including our, our electric buses and now the fare free program to encourage people to ride the bus instead of driving their cars, uh, our fleet of electric vehicles, electric charging stations in, in the uh, parking ramps. Um, and th th this does indeed, and ex excuse the expression, take a village uh, to reach all the goals uh, for the climate action. Uh, and I think we need to be sure to offer incentives to all members of the community, uh, such as offering LED lights. I think the South District uh, did that recently, offered uh, LED lights uh, to folks in exchange for their regular light bulbs. Um, because it, we need to encourage people to continue to provide us with ideas and what we can do, uh, what they can all do to, to also help the environment. Thank you. Our next question, uh, taking a uh, pause from policy for a moment and on to, on to the council interactions, what perspective or experience do you bring that you feel the city council is lacking? Uh, starting with Ms. Remington. Um, again, I will reiterate that I bring the perspective of somebody who just knows what it's like to struggle to live in this town. I have been raising three kids on $50,000 a year with no child support, no state aid, and it's hard. It's hard when you combine your rent and your utilities and you're over that 30% line, um, you know, because that 30% of your income is supposed to be just your rent. That's not the cost, of, or is not supposed to be just your rent. It's total cost of living, which includes your utilities and everything else associated with renting a house. Um, I've had to make decisions such as whether I'm going to pay my water bill or whether I'm going to take a late fine on my water bill so I can pay for my cell phone bill so that my kids can reach me this month. That's not something that we have had in our city council since I would say the 80s or 90s um, at least. And it's a very important perspective because it reflects a lot of our, our people that live in our city. I think, you know, as the first and only black woman on the city council, I have brought and I will continue bringing, you know, a unique perspective that enrich the discussion. Not only that, I would, like my track record is clear for the people who know me. I being, uh, I'm a founder of the Center for Worker Justice. I know how to bring people together for ideas and solutions. I done it for many things. I recover like 200,000 wake theft by talking to like uh, you know employer to recover it for the people. I know like people from different background. I work with them, and I know that all those people are not only bringing issues; they bringing also creative solution and idea. I can work as a bridge builder between things. That's why I think I will bring really good idea to the city council table. No, I am a collaborator, and so um, I really appreciate and enjoy listening to people from all different perspectives and finding that common ground and helping push towards solutions that can actually move us in the direction of wherever our shared uh, values and ideas are. Uh, again, professionally, I have that training, but also just in my life experience and being able to um, you know, participate in so many different organizations and the capacity of 
continuing to connect and convene. Um, I spend a lot of my constituent service in connecting people, in saying, oh, you should talk to this person, you should talk to this person, you should talk to this person. Um, and I think my track record on city council so far has been that I work well with everyone, even when we have deep policy disagreements. And uh, that will continue uh, in my next term. I'll just say it, I'll be honest, I'm an older person. And I believe that uh, that perspective is helpful on the council because I, I think that that population oftentimes gets overlooked uh, in, in some of the decisions that are being made. Uh, and we need that perspective of the older generation. Uh, we heard recently from uh, the older swimmers that uh, they go to the, the pool uh, to exercise. And, and that's what they do and that's what they get out there and that's how they socialize with folks. And that's a very important thing that, and, and that gets overlooked sometimes. And I think also as far as housing, a lot of our older persons are, are being pushed out of the houses that they're in now or their apartments. And also as transportation, that's another thing that, uh, that needs to be looked at to, to help those folks get out and about. So uh, a third of our budget roughly is capital improvement projects. We also have home funds and community development block grants. These are all buildings things, infrastructure things, things that require someone with experience in design, planning, contracting, and construction. And that's a skill set that we don't currently have on city council. Now we have a really remarkable city staff who does that work and we that's their job every day to make our city function. Um, but having somebody on city council that I think can really understand the work that they do, how that process works and how that impacts our community, not only the, the, how the roads work, but also the health and safety and welfare of our community. Um, I think that my skill set too as an architect is, has a lot to do with long-term planning and vision making and I want to bring that to city council. Our next question, starting with you, Ms. Salee, is what are, you, what, are your, what are your views on the level of police funding in Iowa City, at both currently and as the city continues to grow? I, the thing that really, you know, during Black Lives Matter movement, I was saying let's cut, like, cut the police fund and use it. I was the only one who was saying that at that time. I don't remember somebody was agreeing with me during that time. So we have not done it. I still think we don't want over-policing. If we're really gonna cut the funding, uh, if we wanna cut the funding because the funding was for making, bringing more police in the community, we don't want that. But do I need to leave, like do we need to have a police? Yes, we need police that enough to make us, keep us safe. We don't want over-policing in the like, neighborhood and in the community we can direct some of the fund toward like, you know, mental health, anything else that the police doesn't have to do. So, and I, I just believe that we need, we need the police, but we have to be careful about what the fund that we're gonna squeeze the budget police for. Is this for their salary to be increased so they can, we can, you know, like they can, we need to do that because our frontline workers, they need also to have increase in your salary because everything is like become expensive. So yeah, it is a big topic. 
Well, if you haven't read my 6,000 word essay on this, um, I urge you to go to lauraburgess.com. This last spring, I did seek to shift $1.6 million from our police department budget into other means of providing community safety. There were several reasons for that. Um, number one, we have had open positions in our police department that we just cannot fill. And so there is money in our salaries line that has been turning over and the budget has been increasing and remaining unspent and it just seems uh, frankly kind of ridiculous to me to continue to invest in a uh, system that we all seem to agree needs to be changed. So my vision for the future as far as community safety is probably different than many of my colleagues, but I think we need to invest very, very heavily on prevention of harm and addressing harm when it does occur through restorative and transformative care of helping people have the tools to work together so that we're not just excising people from the community. Ms. Taylor. I understand what it is to do a difficult job. Uh, I did one for over 38 years, and I appreciate what members of our law enforcement do to keep our community safe, and that's what they're there for, is to keep our community safe. And I do believe that for the most part, Iowa City is a safe place to live. Uh, these law enforcement officers are essential workers in our community. We need to have them here. Uh, and as a member, but as a member of organized labor, I am concerned about the amount of overtime that they are reporting. Uh, but what that tells me is that we are, uh, need to take a serious look at what duties they are doing, what they're responsible for, and perhaps assign persons to various other duties and uh, fund other areas, uh, but not, not defund them, not take the funds away. I am a strong proponent of investing in programs that keep people out of the legal system. Uh, that's why I've spent a lot of my, my personal life investing in not-for-profits that help do that. But I also would not defund the police, nor would I set up the false choice that we have to defund the police to support prevention programs. Um, and that's just because we have a really small police force right now. Our police force is less than half the size of the national average. And if you look at it differently for different community sizes, you look, police officers per thousand people. We're really small, we're really efficient, but we do have a high level of safety, and I think that's because there's been a high level of collaboration between our nonprofits and our police department over the years. Um, and one of the reasons we don't want a, um, a smaller police department, I don't think, is smaller police departments can yield long response times, and long response times can be deadly in some situations. So again, investing in prevention is really important, but it doesn't have to be a choice of prevention or policing. I would say that our budget says otherwise. Um, as Laura said, we have had millions of dollars of police budget that has not been being used. We also have schools that are sharing mental health counselors um, because we don't have enough providers. We're not providing enough preventative services, and finances are part of that. So when we have one pool of money that is not being used and we have a need that is related to that, what that pool of money is meant for, which is public safety, it just seems like a reasonable and um, smart fiscal decision to move that money over so that all of those needs are being met. I'm, I absolutely support incrementally reducing the police budget as we shift that money into other forms of public safety and prevention that our community is lacking. Thank you. Next one, beginning with Ms. Burgess. What steps would you, pr would you prioritize to recruit and re retain a diverse, qualified workforce to public service in city employment? 
the city, I'm smiling because the city manager hears me talk about the shortcomings of our um, current uh, how to apply for jobs at the city system um, because it's incredibly technical and has a lot of barriers in it. So this is something that I care deeply about. And I think um, just to make it a little more palatable, what we need to do is be um, providing information about the jobs that are available and the and enabling people to see themselves in the jobs that we have available. And so we have taken good steps in terms of providing uh, job postings in many different languages and reaching out to different areas of the community to try and recruit a more diverse workforce. But I do think retention is um, where we fall uh, much shorter. And I, I think that just having, um, making sure that people in uh, management and leadership positions within the city, uh, again, can see themselves uh, in in those positions or people who are recruited and come on board can see themselves in, their, in those positions. Positions. We have had a number of very technical conversations about uh, things that can change in specific departments like the fire department and their testing to make it easier. Thank you. Ms. Taylor. Again, as a member of organized labor, I'm, I'm, I am concerned about the labor market in Iowa City and, and we keep hearing that we need to uh, Make, have it be more diverse, and that's difficult. It, it's not like uh, build it and they will come. Uh, as, as Ms. Burgess had mentioned, we've been trying uh, different methods to get out in the community and uh, provide information in many languages, uh, and, and that's been difficult. But I think from a labor sp perspective, we need to look at what we are offering them currently. Uh, what are the benefits? What is the pay? And, and how does that compare to other surrounding communities? Because that must be where they're going, uh, say to Coralville or North Liberty or even up to Cedar Rapids. Uh, so we need to look at that. That, take a serious look at, at what the benefits are and the pay is and, and um, revisit that and offer that, offer better benefits. I absolutely think our city government should reflect the people who live here and we should work really hard to make that happen. And I think what Pauline was saying makes a whole lot of sense to me is we have to be competitive. We have to make sure that our city employees are, are respected and paid well and, and we also have the benefits that they need so that we can compete with the cities around us. Uh, we also need a really good work environment. So if there's uh, anything that we can do as a city government to make their lives better, um, we should be thinking about that. We are in the middle of a budget crunch, so maybe some of those things aren't the most costly things, but they could be meaningfully impactful to people to make it a really great place to work. Um, I would agree on pay and benefits being things that we need to focus on improving for municipal employees, as I did just recently read an article that indicated that our city employees actually, um, percentage-wise, are not paid um, quite at the same rates of other cities, even in Iowa, of similar sizes. Um, but also, I think that this is an area where we could be using our neighborhood districts more. Whenever we're looking at um, diversity, that becomes a thing of go to where people are. Um, we have some neighborhood districts and neighborhood associations in our city that are much stronger and robust and more active than others. And I think that we really need to look at um, strengthening some of the ones that are not as active and what we can do to help them become more active because that's where we get our liaisons into diverse communities from is those neighborhood associations. I think the Iowa City is not look like it used to be. Now if you look around, we have a lot diverse community right now, especially immigrants. I understand that the city tried to recruit uh, people, but you know, think about it. If the city doesn't look like the community, 
I would love to see the school look like the community, the government look like the community, the city look like the county look like the community. That is not really happening. You know, see how many, like, when you go to the city, you don't even relate to the people who work there. So I think the way that they're recruiting people is not enough. The city council have to bring, uh, to come with a policy. They say, like, for example, by 2024, we need maybe 30% of the worker to look like the community. Something like that, like a goal. And, uh, you know, advertising these uh, jobs in language, that not English, at the end of the day, you are not going to hire somebody that doesn't speak English. So it's not going to be like ruthless. Yes, we need to give the people chance. We need to, when we hire people, we need to retain them. We need to give them the tools that they can succeed. Not bring them so we set them for failure. Thank you. Right. Our next one begins with Ms. Taylor. Many of you spoke earlier about the problem that we have with affordable housing. What, what are your plans to solve this problem? I think a, a key to that is uh, encouraging more diverse types of housing. Uh, my favorite that I've been talking about for a couple of years now uh, are the tiny homes. And Mazahar <laughs> shrieked when I first talked about tiny, but I'm talking uh, 600 to 700 foot homes, square foot homes. Uh, I visited a community in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, of all places, very conservative, and they had a whole neighborhood that they had redesigned into these uh, tiny homes that were prefab come down from Minnesota. And they're very inexpensive. They could uh, be well adjusted for affordable homes, and I think that's a good, good way to do that. Also, encouraging more duplexes and fourplexes, uh, the the middle housing that we've been talking about for many years, and I think uh, that's that's the most. Uh, and, and encouraging the developers to do more of the affordable housing. I would, I would like to continue to do that and to continue to encourage them uh, to. Uh, be environmentally correct with solar panels and LED lights and permeable pavement, those kinds of things when they develop. Uh, yeah, we have a housing shortage and we need a lot of housing and a lot of housing types. We need housing for the poor, for the middle class. We need houses for families, for singles. We need families for um, new people who are new to Iowa City. And the way that we do that is, is, we, is we build. Now the city does not have the ability to build uh, at the rate and volume necessary. I think there's as many as 30, uh, excuse me, I think there's uh, 10,000 people in Johnson County right now who are housing burdened. So the way that we, the way that we get more housing is, is, is to incentivize it, but also to get private investment to build housing. Um, Iowa City has not done good in that realm recently. Um, I think we can do better. I asked the city manager um, earlier in the year about a list of vacant properties that the city owns, um, and there wasn't really one. So I think that we need to start with a thorough analysis of all vacant property, underused real estate, and um, vacant land that the city owns and see what can be done with that. Um, also, one of the big problems that we have right now is the state has made it illegal for cities to say that landlords are required to accept vouchers. That's why we just had um, about a dozen unhoused folks lose all of their belongings in a fire. They had housing vouchers. They had people help them apply for housing. They were not able to get it. But we can incentivize in ways like what the county and Center for Worker Justice did when the state preempted our minimum wage law. And we can find other ways in which we can convince landlords and developers to take those vouchers by publicizing that they're good people to rent from um, and providing other types of incentivizations. 
for me, I think one minute is not enough, but I'm gonna be like, as you know, this is one of the top of my priority. I, like really, I went through this. I came to this community. I did not find a house. I, I really, you know, searching for, I, when I had succeeded, I was searching for the house that I used to live before the house that I'm living right now. It take me a month just to find a house that, and also it's expensive, is not affordable. So we need affordable housing. When I was at the city council last time uh, in, during my the first thing I brought to the table is to increase the affordable housing fund, and I did. It was my own sole proposal. We increased it from 600 to 1 million. Only 400,000 is not enough. But we need really to be serious about affordable housing. I hope if we, I get elected, I will find another three people. And I don't, I don't have ideas. I'm not going to tell you how we can build the houses because that's not my area of experience. But I know how to bring people together. I can bring like a lot of stockholders together so they can come up with a solution for this. And we need also to hear from the people who are affected by the problem. The low income people, they have to be a, have a seat in the table when we come to figure out the solution for affordable housing. It's going to take a lot of work, a lot of nuance, a lot of partnerships, a lot of effort. We can't stop. We can't stop talking about it. We can't pretend there is a silver bullet. We have to just keep gunning on this problem. Um, I think we have to more specifically enable a higher diversity of housing. We need to enable higher density of housing. We need to enable infill development whenever we have an opportunity for that. We know that that is the most environmentally responsible way to develop in our community. Um, and we need to incentivize uh, the capacity for, for more housing to be built as well as to pressure those. It's, it's a carrot and a stick, right? We need to be able to uh, exert pressure within the limitations that the state government has imposed on us, but we need to be able to uh, name those who are doing well and put pressure on those who maybe could do better. But it, it's a very complicated problem, but I'm really, really excited about this, uh, what, what I expect may be the next council um, in being able to work hard on this. All right, our next question, beginning with Mr. Mo. Uh, You've been in drought for three years. What can the city do about water use? Can the city council pass rules limiting water, watering of lawns? So Iowa City has this truly remarkable water purification plant that was a major investment of our city. And it's a, it's a really precious resource that we have here. And um, our, 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 our major, one of our major employers, Procter & Gamble, likes to be here because we have great water. So I think I would encourage everybody to think of this water as not just an a, a unimportant thing that comes out of your faucet, um, but something that's really important to this community. I am unaware of a water shortage or water shortage availability in our community. Um, as a function of sustainability, wasting water is bad because it is, by its nature, wasting energy because when you make pure water, it takes a ton of energy. Um, but I would like to learn more about that if that is an impending problem, a shortage of water, because I didn't know that. Ms. Remington. I would be more interested in encouraging lawns that don't need to be watered as much. I would be interested in doing more to encourage native plantings, um, no mow may, um, creating non-monoculture yards in more of our community through programs that provide 
plantings and seeds and through education programs, we can just reduce the need to water our lawns at all without having to necessarily impose restrictions like that. Yeah, to me also, I wasn't aware about any, as like Gosh Mama said, any water shortage, but I live in a house. I don't remember I mowed the lawn, like I watered the land before, maybe for my flowers and everything outside, I do that, but I really, not aware about, like, I never did, done that myself. I think we have great water in Iowa City. We need to, like, really, uh, you know, be understanding that this is not something, an easy thing to, to get, so we don't want to waste water if that's going to be, like, really waste. So we need maybe to encourage something else. I don't know what the solution for that, if for the people who really like to water their lawn, I really don't know. But maybe we can come up with, figure it out, but I really don't know the answer for that. I think for the next few decades, Iowa City is gonna become even more um, desirable because we do have good abundant water. And as the climate crisis accelerates, I think people will learn that that is a, a benefit that we have here. I'm also not aware of a shortage at this time, and I think we've done a really, really good job of planning ahead in terms of our water capacity and our water treatment and the flexibility of that system. Um, I also agree, though, that we shouldn't be putting potable water on our lawns. Um, I think that you know, encouraging different types of plantings, encouraging different um, ways of keeping one's yard, uh, and just culturally you know, kind of minimizing that idea that you have to have a, a perfect, pristine, well-watered lawn. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that water quality in terms of our surface water, our river, um, and those types of things is, is critically important and something that we need to be focusing on. I happen to have had a uh, water main break in my neighborhood just a few houses up from me uh, yesterday and that required the, the whole block to have water turned off, the service turned off to their homes. So I found out firsthand what it was like to have that feeling for several hours of not being able to have water, which is, is crucial. People need water to bathe, to do laundry, to drink. A lot of people I know are drinking bottled water, but a lot of people do depend on for cooking and, and that. I know we're talking about watering the lawns, and on that respect, I think it's kind of, it would be kind of a double standard to say that you, you can't water your lawns because we have rules in place of how tall your grass can be and how often you should mow it and if it starts getting weedy or, or dead and brown. So I think it would be kind of a double standard to say you can't water your lawns. But as my uh, fellow candidates have, have expressed, there are many other ways, uh, other kinds of lawn or, or plantings that we can have. I, the e I love the east side neighborhood. If you go drive around the east side neighborhoods, the Longfellow neighborhoods, those folks have all kinds of, they don't have front lawns with grass. They've got, they've got plantings and it's absolutely beautiful. So I think there are other ways that we can encourage people people to, to do that besides having grass and, and watering it. Our final question before closing statements will begin with Ms. Remington. Last week, Iowa City held a primary election. These extra elections cost a great deal of effort and money to run. However, voter turnout was 6.58%, well below 10%. What do you think of ranked choice voting? I support ranked choice voting. Um, I think this is probably the first question that I don't really need a full minute to answer. It seems like a pretty just basic question. Um, yes, I do think that ranked choice voting provides more ability for folks to 
make sure that their preferences are being heard. Um, so one, one choice is not always really encompassing of all of the nuance involved in politics. Can you ask a question again, please? Yeah. The question was, uh, in Iowa City's primary election last week, voter turnout was 6.58%. So what do you think of ranked choice voting? I don't understand what you mean by the law things. What we think what? Of ranked choice voting. What the ranked choice voting? Hmm. Uh, ranked choice voting is a voting system where rather than voting oh. in sequence, you you, pre you write your candidates by preference of first, second, third place. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I, I understand now what you're saying. Uh, I, I really didn't, I never thought about that, but you know, the turnout was really bad. That's true, 6% out of 9,600 people uh, like register for vote in District A and only like 600 something people vote. And I, I, I think if that, if we can go that way and that will make like people, uh, more people come and vote, maybe, I, I, I really don't know, the, you know, what we can do about that. Uh, it is really, it, it take a lot time to encourage people to go and vote. And especially I can see that in my own community, they don't vote except for like presidential elections. But we need to do something about this uh, to encourage people to go and vote. Yes, I support ranked choice voting. Um, I also think the city has a role to play in doing a better job of communicating what all the city is doing so that people can understand the importance of local elections and that the elections for city council and school board affect people's day-to-day -day lives typically much more than other higher office elections. So I think we need to continue to communicate the good work that we're doing and get people engaged and ranked choice voting would be great. I agree with that. I, I haven't heard a lot about ranked choice voting. Uh, what I've been hearing more from voters in the community was that uh, they would like to see us as a city elect the mayor rather than uh, being elected by the council itself. So that's what I've heard more than than about the ranked choice. I Personally, I don't believe that uh, going to the ranked choice would, would increase the voter turnout. It's more the education, getting the folks to know that it, it is absolutely important uh, to their lives. Uh, they seem to be interested in national elections and sometimes state, but it comes to city, uh, and I don't know why that is. But obviously, we have interest here, and League of Women Voters does a lot to get that education out. So I think just educating the voters on the importance of voting, whether it's ranked voting or, or regular ballot voting. I think ranked choice voting sounds like a really cool idea and I'd be really interested in doing it. I do think that there is a risk if we were to do something novel here in Iowa City that's different than the rest of the state that it would cause even further confusion mm -hmm. and actually get less turnout. Mm -hmm. So this last primary was confusing. I. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a hard time actually connecting with voters in the A district because they were so confused. They're like, wait, who gets to vote? Why do only some people get to vote? And so um, our current system is confusing to people and I would be a little bit worried about adding more confusion to the mix. Um, low voter turnout though is, is, is disappointing. I think we've heard, uh, you know, Ms. Burgess was talking about how we need to do a better job explaining what government does and how important local government is to your daily lives and the important work that's done and how it can really impact you in a direct and quick way. Um, so <laughs> that's a non-answer. <laughs> we'll now move on to closing statements. 
Each candidate will have two minutes for their closing statement. And mixed up, we're going to move down the table the other way. So, Ms. Taylor, you have first rights. Thank you. Earlier I mentioned the importance of listening to what a person has to say. Uh, I will strive to actively listen while giving close and thoughtful attention to what is being said. You all have a voice and I will listen. My life experience, passion, and dedication to helping people in need has carried over into my work on the City Council. This was evident when I stood up for the residents of Rose Oak and Forest View. If you'd like further information on that, I'd love to talk to you about those incidents. I enjoy doing this work and would love to be able to continue this important service to Iowa City community, which I've loved for over 49 years. I'm honored to have received support from my fellow council members, John Thomas, Sean Harmson, and Mayor Bruce Teague. As a retired member of SEIU Local 199, I'm very proud to have received endorsement for the third time from the Iowa City Federation of Labor. It would take much longer than two minutes for me to list all of my many wonderful individuals who have offered their support and encouragement. For the sake of time, I will name just a few, and these names you'll recognize. Former Johnson County Attorney Janet Linus, former State Representative Mary Masher, former City Council Member Larry Baker, County Board of Supervisor Member Ann Porter, Tony Curran, Peter Flynn, Gary Sanders, Trish Nelson, former County Auditor Tom Slockett, Council Candidate Mazahir Salee, and the many residents of neighborhoods that I've heard from that I've stood up for when developers infringed on their surrounding area. Again, I'd like to make it clear that all persons who are registered voters in Iowa City can now vote for all of the seats on the ballot, District A, District C, and the at-large seats. So please vote on or before Tuesday, November 7th, and I would appreciate your support and your vote. Thank you. Ms. Burgess. Thank you. I want to continue to serve you because I am so excited about the direction that Iowa City is going. And right now is not a time to be comfortable. Right now is not a time to fly under the radar. Right now is a time to lead. And I believe that in the last four years, my service on council has shown that I am up for that challenge. And I will continue to step up. And I will continue to share power. I will continue to empower every person in this community to help take collective action, which really is the only thing that can make significant systemic change. I'm experienced, and I know how to take in a lot of information make difficult decisions, and to balance so many different competing factors. I think my service has shown this, not just on the city council, but in my professional life and my volunteer time in the community. Speak to people in my neighborhood about what we do and how we bring people together. And I think you will see that Iowa City is ready for this kind of leadership, and it needs to continue. I'd be so grateful to have your support and your vote on November 7th. Thank you. Let me just tell you some of my accomplishments during my uh, last term. You know, I'm very proud of what I did. Uh, for affordable housing, I successfully advocate for increasing the affordable housing fund from 600 to 1 million. Affordable housing is a cornerstone of, uh, of our successful community, and I am committed to continue making it accessible for all the residents, including mobile home residents who deserve justice and fair treatment. 
economic development. I advocated for raising the minimum wage for hourly temporary employee of the city from 10, 10 to $15 an hour. This was a critical step toward improving city employee and ensuring our frontline staff can afford to live in the community that they serve. I wanted to continue on Safai's job with a livable wage as well as small businesses development and economic innovation. Transportation, together with others, I advocate for the transit study to improve transportation accessibility across the city leading to the free fare today. In that case, we will need to focus on the road access, accessibility, and, uh, and scheduling and Sunday transit as well. Uh, you know, equity access and opportunity for all. I have worked toward tran translating city uh, document into multiple languages to increase access, access and transparency. Everyone should have an equal opportunity to engage with our local government. Representation, as the first and only black woman on the city council, I have brought and will continue to bring a unique perspective that enriches our discussion. I am committed to represent and advocate for all the voices and the concern for all Iowa City residents and underrepresented community. Thank you for believing in the power of our community. Please remember to vote for me on or before November 7. Thank you. Thank you all for the opportunity to engage and talk tonight about issues that are important to our community. In closing, I want to reiterate my commitment to the well-being of all of our residents that has earned me the only statewide and national endorsements in this race from Iowa Unity Coalition and Run for Something, as well as a scholarship to this weekend's Move On's 25th anniversary summit. Um, my priorities as a city councilor are all crucial components of a thriving community improving access to basic needs such as affordable housing, transportation, childcare, and food, enhancing the accessibility of our community and our civic system so that everybody can engage, and improving community health and safety by collaborating with organizations that are already doing the work. My love for this community and for my neighbors drives my dedication to addressing critical wellness and equity issues, and my life experiences, education, and connections that I've made in our community and beyond have given me a deep understanding of the ways in which our local nonprofit, university, and government entities um, influence each other and the potential for collaboration among them. I aim to make Iowa City more inclusive and accessible for all, regardless of income, language, caregiving responsibilities, or any other barriers. I've spent years as a community leader, building alliances and advocating for the betterment of our city. And now I'm ready to work with those allies as an elected official to maximize our impact and improve the quality of life for everyone. I ask for your support and your vote, not for me, but for all of us, as I promise to ensure everyone's voice is heard as we work together to overcome challenges and create a stronger future. Thank you for your time and your commitment to building an even better Iowa City. And please vote for me, Mandy Remington, on or before November 7th. Thank you. Public service has been a dream of mine for a long time, but right now I feel like I'm qualified to do the job that the people of Iowa City need to be done. We live in a really wonderful city, but the truth is we do have problems. One thing we didn't get to talk much about today is our local economy. For 176 years, the University of Iowa was our prime economic engine, but they're not growing anymore. UAHC is investing in Coralville North Liberty, 
Kirkwood closed their Iowa City campus, ACT continues to shrink, Pearson closed their campus north of the interstate, and Mercy is going through a bankruptcy. We have some headwinds ahead of us, but I'm willing to take that on. We also have old buildings, and we have homes that are too expensive, and our city budget has grown, grown smaller. If we want to continue to live in the best city in Iowa, which I believe that we do, it's going to take a city council that can build consensus, think creatively, and not only develop, but uh, accomplish long-term goals. This is a responsibility that I want to take on. My professional experience as an architect in Iowa City focuses on construction and planning. My personal life involves knowledge of our non-for-profits, and my, my maturity allows me to balance the many needs of different stakeholders for the sake of progress. I think my focus on, on making this community the best place to live is, and also the best place to do business and to work has earned me uh, the top score from the Iowa City Downtown District as well as the endorsement of the Federation of Labor. So when you, the voters, go to the ballot box, think about a city as a team. You are building a team, a team of different people with complementary skill sets. Think about the skill sets that I could bring to city council. I want you to pick Josh Moe to be on your team. So please vote for me, Josh Moe, at large, on or before November 7th. Thanks. Thank you to all of our candidates and to those of you in, in attendance here, watching from home, as well as to the Iowa City AV team for making this video cast and live streaming possible. Let's give them a hand. We would like to remind, remind you that the views expressed in this forum are those of the candidates and that sponsorship of the forum is not an endorsement of any candidate. More information about voting and the candidates can be found online at vote411.org. Remember to vote in the election on or before Election Day, Tuesday, November 7th. Absentee ballots can be requested now through October 23rd, and early voting be begins on October 18th. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Thank you.